welcome to the first Overline podcast. This is actually the first time I'll be doing this discussion because we'll be passing you over to Craig Wiseman, who's a much better podcast voice than I. My name is Patrick McConlock. I'm the CEO of Overline Network, and I absolutely love this project, and I love what we're going to talk about today. Today, we have Arjun Raj Jain. Hey, guys. How's it going? And Joshua Bursky. Hello, everyone. And we're really excited to be sharing more details about first- Everything that's been going on with the Thor Chain universe, everything that's been going on in the Overline world, and they'll be looking at all this controversy and all this discussion around energy and mining. What does it mean to you and what does it mean to decentralized wireless? So this podcast kicks it all off. Let's get started with Thor Chain. Joshua, what do you know about them? The two of us differ is that Thor Chain has opted for a validator-led consensus model. Whereas we focus on proof of work. Now, what occurred over the last week is Thorchain found itself hacked twice in the span of a single week. Where the hack occurred was on what they call the liquidity pools. So, of course, that demonstrates an issue that's likely to plague any protocols where you're pooling funds for those funds to either provide liquidity or provide wrapping services. So, wait, wait. So, pause there for a second. These funds were stolen, they were hacked. Like, what is a liquidity pool? Well, they were drained where they were fortunate. So the liquidity pool has the people can store their funds in a smart contract that then provides guaranteed liquidity to the people that Mm. utilize the protocol. And in exchange for doing so, the people that pool their funds receive a share of the transaction fees, the liquidity fees that go through the network. The trouble there is that you're then being forced to trust that that smart contract code does not have bugs that would allow it to be drained or you know malicious those funds maliciously extracted from from the liquidity pool itself. Now I don't actually know the, the answer to this question, but the funds that I'm using in these liquidity pools, this is Thorchain funds. What's their coin name? I believe it is called Thorchain, yes. However, I believe the the funds that were taken from the liquidity pool was actually a variety of different currencies. Interesting. Um, so it's a, it's a bank run. Yeah, effectively. Where they were fortunate is it does appear that the person who's, who drained the liquidity pool was actually a white hat hacker. So fortunately, they did it more to demonstrate, make an example of Thorchain rather than to actually abscond with the funds. That being said, you know, the entire Thorchain issue, I think people are focusing on the hack, which is really the least interesting part of the entire debacle itself. What I found far more interesting was what the validators did in response to the hack, because I think that demonstrates a, an issue that's far more systemic with validator-led consensus itself. And that was that the very small number of validators that effectively run the Thorchain protocol colluded to halt the network's operations. The challenge there is it makes you wonder, okay, well, if they could do that once, what's to stop them from doing it uh, again in the future? And furthermore, now that they've demonstrated the type of power that they they hold over the network, where does that power end? Mm. Was that the goal of the white hacker to expose this? Were, Has you, he, were uh, you the white hat hacker? <laughs> <laughs> Has he or she kind of come out and said why they did this? I think that they have um, I think that they have made a a comment on uh, what they 
what they executed the hack for. And I think it was more to do with the fact that, you know, pooling funds comes from, uh, comes with inherent risks, especially if you're not careful about the code that you're deploying. But I, I, I'm not sure if it was their intention to highlight the problem with validators. I think that just by default, they've begun to expose that. And, you know, naturally, I think that that should spark a conversation on a lot of the other protocols in the space that are claiming to be decentralized and also utilizing validator run models. And it should also hopefully give you all some solace in, you know, why we've been so adamant about sticking to the purity of the proof of work model. Mm. Well, I can't wait to talk about that a little later. The proof of work thing, obviously we're a fan of proof of work and proof of distance. Uh, so Josh, one clarification here. Was I trusting ThorChain when I deposited my funds or was I trusting the validators or was it a combination? And how has this played out so far? Like what's the result now? It was definitely a combination. I would say that if you're if you're the individual that's pooling your funds, you're you're trusting the the code that the ThorChain developers have deployed. I think if you're a user, and that includes the people providing liquidity on the protocol. You're also trusting that those that small set of validators are always going to be operating in, in you know interests that align with your own. Now, certainly, of course, validator run led uh, re- validator led consensus models do have you know incentives that that try their best to keep validators in alignment, but unfortunately, that isn't always the case. It's it's weird because what I'm feeling here is the way to win this game is to then just be a validator, right? I mean the the answer is if I have the most money in the network, I have the most marketing power and influence exactly over the network, what it is. I can just keep selling, do this, do that. And so clearly somewhere there's a ThorChain validator, you know, telegram group, messaging group that just, hey guys, let's hit the stop button. And that's the challenge. And especially with a, a protocol like ThorChain, the barrier to entry to becoming a validator is so astronomically high. I believe it, you know, at the time of the hack was around at least 1 million, I believe it was possibly even closer to 2 million just to run a validator to node. So my understanding is that, you know, whilst they may have had 30 or 40 validators on the network, those were all run by a very small number of people, predominantly the team themselves. Interesting. Well, what's cool with not being a validator is at least when you look out through history, it's never cool to be Friar Tuck. You know, you look at the the old narratives and it's like, yeah, who wants to be the evil banker? What is that? Mm. Potter? You know, Potter in that Christmas mm. movie or whatever it is. Like there is something anti-theoretical in the premise of conglomerated power. And, you know, even like demonopolization has never really been viewed as a negative, although it might not be brutal in its act. Breaking apart monopolies is is a big deal. So before we dive in on the monopoly side, Arjun, what is your solution just off the top of your head? And none of this is scripted. So we're, you know, we really are just off the cuff here. But what on top of your head could the ThorChain community do? And we're not saying like, oh, everyone fly over to Overline, blah, blah, blah. just get rid of the validators. Like, how would you do it? Yeah. I mean, so this actually reminds me of a lot of DAO hack that happened back in the day. And their solution then was to have a vote. And so all the miners and everyone that was a part of the network had a vote what to do. 
Now, there's obviously a bunch of conspiracies around there with regards to how the vote was was made and everything. But the point being is that the actual users of ThorChain didn't actually have a say into how this should be solved. They put themselves in a in a place where they had to trust that these people that are going to run the network are going to do the right thing. If you know, if I were one of the ThorChain holders and everything, I would start a group right now and get people to call them out. And I would actually ask for a complete switch to proof of work. It's it all, This obviously takes time and the way the protocol is built will obviously have to change, but it's just evident that, you know, they did arguably uh, the right thing for their community now, but it just exposes the power that these guys have. And so even though the users might be happy in the short term, in the long term, this is going to be very, very scary. Strange. I like how a lot of these coins are are starting to look like political campaigns, like literally come together, form a group, you know, build momentum as a community, and then attempt to switch the situation. So you look at political systems and the same mm-hmm. sort of thing happens. Like we come together as, as one and make a decision that influences your community. On that, let's talk about OpenLine itself. And we're not trying to leave the Thor chain people in the cold. Eventually, hopefully they'll, they'll hear this or, you know, they'll, they will have unvalidated everything. It might be nice to have like a mining protocol. That's like unstake. <laughs> I'd like to unstake things. <laughs> But uh, so let's talk about a new mining protocol. Uh, and I know that last week we had this dry run podcast. We're dealing with some really interesting setups here that gets us to be able to live stream as well as podcasts. It's, it's not easy. But in that setup process, we wanted to really share more details on wireless mining. Wireless mining is something that keeps us going late at night. It keeps us going in terms of what we're really doing here. And it's been something that has been fundamental in the protocol since the beginning. So everyone in the Overline community, literally more than 100,000 unique downloads, of different wallets, creation of new addresses, every single one of those has a network address in their wallet. And I'm not suggesting you do this, but you could go create a brand new wallet now on the interchange. So go to overline.network and create a wallet. And when you do, you're actually going to get a wallet that's been upgraded. And we've been upgrading wallets since the first. So in the very first generated BSEC wallet in January, 2017, every wallet comes with wireless mining. And what we called it in the white paper is transaction mining. We didn't want to go into the wireless side to avoid the focus on our multi-chain technology. We need this to have its fundamentals and then build upon them. But with wireless mining, you begin with a Mac-compatible address. So an address that is actually already on every Wi-Fi-enabled device on the planet. Now, that's important because if you think about it in your head and you zoom out, it's interesting. The whole world doesn't actually need cellular providers, doesn't actually need independent pay-for-you-go hotspots if people's Wi-Fi would work together. Like walk down a big city and see if your phone ever comes into a situation where it doesn't find a Wi-Fi network. Walk down the street. You're going to see full connection down the board. 
So the problem isn't antennas. The problem is incentives. So it's, it has everything to do with exactly how Bitcoin started. There are no incentives for people to run their own mini bank until we figured out a way to create an algorithm to do it. And so with Overline, we created proof of distance. And we laugh because we like to name things for exactly what they are. Like Overline is a line to connect to things over the air. Overline. Proof of distance is literally an algorithm to prove the distance between two radio antennas using electrostatic interference. Now, I'm not trying to get heady and I'm not trying to get complicated and we're not trying to make some sort of pivot. So that's why I brought up to you for years, we've kept wireless at the top of our mind. We just don't want it to be the primary focus until this year. And we've slowly transitioned to make the discussion around wireless, you know, come to light. But it's also how we've developed all these amazing partnerships. So let's just say we have a wild card in our back pocket. And, and Josh can attest, we pull out some pretty interesting hardware and conduct a pretty interesting demo. And then we have a pretty unique partnership that no other you know chain has because it's like, yeah, we've been thinking a couple steps down the road and we like real decentralized tech. So how do I wirelessly mine? Arjun? So I want to take one step back there. And this is obviously going to be a discussion to go deeper into next time. It is an interesting example where greed just inherently goes above and beyond of goodwill mm -hmm. in this situation. Because right now, everyone could actually open up their routers now, turn off their passwords and everything, and this should work. But it is interesting where creating an incentive model just makes the likelihood of everyone actually eventually opening up their routers and having a shared network is a lot more likely to happen. So we can but, do it. Yeah, I, yeah. But I'm we can paid. I, tell me about this greed argument. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh so in the in the simplest sense, and this actually goes uh, well into our next point too. Transaction or wireless mining is an entirely new form of mining out there. In the simplest sense, you're essentially getting paid to relay a piece of information onto the next node. Mm. So say I'm on my iPhone and I am on airplane node and I'm linked up to this specialized hardware node that we will uh, have for our consumers. I want to send some overline or I want to send uh, some other piece of information, say an SMS or something, right? What I would do, what the phone would do is ping that off of the hardware node and the hardware node would broadcast that all around me and then someone close by would ping back and say hey i'm within this range from you where pod gets uh interesting pod being proof of distance uh where that gets interesting is in the simplest sense it is unspoofable gps so we've created this method to allow you to so, tell how far you are away from each other without having to rely on the centralized GPS model. So wait, you know, listeners visualize this for a second in your head, sit back and think, imagine going into a room, coming in as a blockchain, walking out of that room and having shown them, we can do GPS in that room with cryptographic certainty. And 
That is, just to give you the thought of the demo, we put two antennas on the table. We use the exact same mining algorithm that literally tens of thousands of people have run on their machines, CPU or GPU. That same algorithm we apply to electrostatic pulled off of two SDRs, and we demonstrate how the SDRs can be indoors, no GPS link, provably shown to be closer or farther apart from each other. And while that sounds boring in nature, it's literally the double spend problem in the telecommunication industry. It solves for spoofing your antenna location. And that is huge. So when my hardware node is able to reach some other node out there that can either ping off to whatever node I want to reach or to the internet to add my transaction to Mm -hmm. the overline network, I would just create a UTXO and basically pay that node. So for the un for the untechnical, and this is key here, we fully expect people to live their life running an overline node. We believe that is going to be a viable, like being the town dentist, being the town specialist or a pharmacist, you're going to be able to do that with overline proof of distance mining. In the applicable sense, you can see it in big exchanges. So you can see clearly, and we like FTX, we're not necessarily against FTX, but in their success, a lot of that has been around taking fees for brokering trades. If we can provide a model for mesh networks to facilitate trades and share in those fees, we're taking the hundreds of millions and we are divvying that up to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And so this is immense wealth being generated by these exchanges. And that's why when we say Overline is a decentralized exchange, we have so much more gravity in that statement when we say it. So when we look at things like ThorChain, it's a regrettable situation on the old internet. It's also a situation where there's a misunderstanding about where all of this is going. And it's not going to stop at disrupting banks. It started with disrupting banks. Up next, without a shadow of a doubt, with 100% certainty, telecommunications will never be the same. 2022, 2023, 2024 are going to see the biggest changes in wireless communications worldwide anywhere. So now let's talk about the last thing here. And this, I'd love to hear, Joshua, your thoughts too, but I'm going to wrap this section with wireless mining with an understanding of income. You are going to run a device called an overline wireless miner. You're going to run that device on your phone. You'll be able to run that device on a Wi-Fi router. You'll be able to run that device or that protocol on partner mesh networks. We're not against the rise of the entire decentralized wireless space. We, we are working together on a singular mission, but you will earn from it. And that's its primary goal is to take what was once AT&T's, what was once China Mobile's, what was once Verizon's, what was once O2's, and put it into the town again, into the community again, which is why you'll be seeing in the next couple of days a focused launch on a distribution network specializing in very, very tall buildings. Okay, so Josh and Arjun, but Arjun, tell me again, let's talk about this last thing because we need to touch on this before we wrap up here. Mining. Is it is it killing trees? 
<laughs> I have well, to know. I would actually like to make a quick point that one of the interesting things that, of course, you know, the very clean tech people out there is that transaction or wireless mining by the nature of it is just inherently a lot less energy. It just requires a fraction amount of energy that block mining does require. So it is an interesting thing where we didn't even plan it like this. We wanted to kind of bring in a cleaner form of mining out there where a lot of energy was not required. That being said, there is a lot of myths and a lot of misunderstanding right now about proof of work mining. And there is no doubt that Bitcoin mining does require energy and that energy could be used for other things. But there's also situations where that energy is actually not being used for anything at all. And fundamentally, people are paying for that energy consumption. It's not going into thin air. So it is, can, you, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So I think the easiest comparison would be to make to the energy that is required to run a bank. Now, that is hundreds of thousands employees. And we can go deep in here where it's the food to pay to have the human being live and the energy required to pay for the AC and everything. So what you're saying everything. is unplug human beings? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> okay. He's interesting. He's not saying unplug but, human beings. Stay plugged in. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a thing where Bitcoin really doesn't require any human being at all. Bitcoin does not require infrastructure that requires a lot of energy that banks need. Yeah, it's interesting the number of times walking around in big cities. I'm sure everyone has seen fully lit up bank branches. And it's just the strangest thing because every time I look at that, I'm like, well, Bitcoin's working, I guess, because there's no one, <laughs> there's not a soul in there and they're leaving it on. So it doesn't look, I guess, spooky or, I, you know, I have no idea. Like we're Chase and we forgot the lights every single day of the year. It's also a lot of private jet flights for their executives. And, <laughs> and, uh, are you saying there's a conspiracy involved in there? Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I know. This, well, we'll see if the next episode shot from uh, Palm Beach, but uh, maybe not. Uh, what might be, we be doing down there? Probably? Yes, I know, I know. So let's uh, wrap this up real quick. Everyone, Although, actually, if you don't mind, I'd just like to add a little bit onto the, the proof of work conversation there. Um, something that I found quite interesting is is there was a study, I know that uh, Cambridge University has been tracking the, the proof of work and they estimated that actually of, of the proof-of-work facilities that are currently running, they estimate that around 40% of the energy being utilized actually comes from renewable sources. And then there was CoinShares that did another study. Someone get Elon. Yeah. <laughs> CoinShares did another study, I believe, about a few months ago, and they estimated it to actually be more closer to around 70%. But what's even more interesting there is of the remainder that's not from renewable sources. A lot of it's actually being, people are picking up the excess that's being produced from facilities that are already burning that energy regardless. So what people have found is that cryptocurrency mining is actually an incredibly effective way to monetize the excess output from the existing energy producing facilities that we have. And adding on to that, I know that a lot of the hydroelectric dams that were established in certain areas of places like China, for instance, 
they otherwise wouldn't have been able to justify that infrastructure expense had they not been able to monetize the excess through cryptocurrency mining. So I think that that's sort of a huge misconception that people have around mining is that it's incredibly, uh, you know, terrible for the environment, et cetera. I actually think it's, it's a, a positive uh, when you look at the bigger picture. Hmm. So, so you're saying that it creates an incentive for people to go out and find renewable sources of energy. That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, the, the most cost-effective power that you can get is one that comes from a renewable source. So it, it motivates us to strive towards finding that. Um, but, you know, furthermore, a lot of people are looking for alternate solutions that they deem to be, you know, in their own words, less uh, energy demanding. But the problem there is if your solution fundamentally defeats the purpose of decentralization, which is what proof of stake to a large extent does, then what's the purpose? <laughs> nice, nice. It's true. So I, I'm intrigued with how that will play out. We'll, we'll let you know in the next one if there's something there. In the next podcast, I do know I want to cover how Overline deals with Cuba, which I'm sure that most people didn't expect that sentence was going to come out, and, and neither did we, to be honest, but you know, we aren't fully the ones in charge here. In terms of uh, emblem owners and the beautiful, handsome emblem whales that uh, I guess this room contains, but also this ecosystem contains, I, I want to look at what emblems are in wireless mining space, because this is something that we wanted to really leave to the people who understand the protocol, and you'll see why in a moment. When mining emblems support the speed and size of blocks. And that isn't something that's really addressed right now because we aren't trying to carry hundreds of millions of trades and hundreds of millions, hundreds of billions of texts. Yeah. But <laughs> exactly. But in that sense, with those kinds of numbers, obviously there's some advantage to emblems. But we actually see emblems acting as a counterweight in the mining ecosystem for the depreciation of cellular hardware as well as mining and GPU hardware. So an address that contains emblems is very, very different in the universe of Overline. When that address, for example, is running a wireless node, there is a certain amount of emblems that arguably the address gets free service. So it's it's interesting how it ends up working. but emblems provide block bonuses that in the mining sense when the address is a is a, of a type that includes a proof of distance challenge which keep in mind the whole network runs on that so we can run super lightweight nodes that fully validate the actual overline chain it's because the whole overline chain has been designed from the beginning to be wireless it's why there's always these weird things that we don't really talk about things like twns in the blockchain that has specifically for routing through primary towers but in terms of what emblems do, once on an antenna, they make blocks bigger, but they make transactions more attractive in a pool where there's potentially thousands and then tens of thousands. A wireless miner who has emblems at it can be earning hundreds of times more than a traditional relay because their transactions are either faster or they are able to go into a block. The reason because in the proof of distance model, when an emblem is combined with the block on a wirelessly mined transaction, 
it goes into some of the block size bonus. So the miner itself, and this has already been added, this is at the protocol level, but emblems as a differentiator for cellular infrastructure is a whole different topic and a whole different thing to talk about. But that is something that I, I want to start communicating now so we understand what we're going to be doing with these as things like vanity addresses come out, as things like leasing comes out. Like vanity address is the equivalent of the future phone number, right? It's what the world's phone number is going to look like, uh, we think, at least. So thanks. That was our first cast. Arjun, thanks for coming. Joshua, thanks for coming. No problem. And Next week, be, you'll hear from a couple of other people. Indeed. Just before we do go, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to OL and Steve Brulee from the chat. I know that they were very keen to have a very shout nice. out. Very nice. <laughs> Appreciate that. And, and Ozworld, Layla does say hello. We're not actually sponsoring any of these people. there. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to the Open Line Podcast. Tune in to us weekly or follow us on Twitter at Overline Network.